Hey friends, this is your friend Kyle Coleman, and I want to welcome you to Are We Still Friends, the podcast where I dig into the brains of fascinating friends. Oftentimes I haven't gotten to catch up with these friends in a while, and like we all do, I sometimes wonder, are we still friends? Today we sit down with someone who I have known for going on nine years, ever since I started improv, Kiri Leek. Kiri is a librarian, a dancer, and a teacher. She started improv in high school and hasn't looked back in the 30 years since. She was a founding member of the former Brody Theater, a member of groups such as Broad Selection, The Narrows, Future Cool, and Nepotism. She is always looking for new friends to play cribbage with. Maybe we can start with this, because I'm going to start it. The title is called Are We Still Friends? Yes. Do we answer that? We will at the end. That's the hardest part I've had with this so far is figuring out how that plays into the actual episode. Because I don't expect us to not be friends after the end of it. It might be. I might decide. (laughs) No, joking. Well, that's the thing is like after an hour, like maybe we say something that we're like, yikes, I didn't know that about you. Or Okay, so... (laughs) Let's let's start with the premise that we're still friends. Yes. <laughs> and I expect that to be the case at the end. So I guess I guess what I think is interesting cuz I was thinking a lot about this and I was thinking about this podcast and I was thinking that I don't think a lot of people have friendships like you and I. Do you I mean is that I have a lot of friendships that are not exactly like this, but like I think that the idea of a man and a woman having friend being friends is still bizarre to people. And I think it's really weird. Do you encounter that? I do. And it's something that I think about often because I tend to have a lot more female friends than yes. male friends. Many I'm the more. same. Yeah. I, well, I, have, I tend to have more male friends than female friends. Historically, I have a really good set of female friends as well. It's not like I don't have female friends, very strong friendships that are that are female. But I have always historically had male friendships. And I've always been told repeatedly, that's not possible. I was like, <sighs> it is. They're like, well, secretly, one of you's got to be into the other. I'm like, well, that's not, that doesn't have to be part of the factor, right? It, that's not, that's not, uh, and maybe that's the case, but that's not the case. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's, it, that's not what we're, the, we're here for, right? I don't know. I was just thinking about that. Like, I, I feel like it's still a, something that people are obsessed around, that, that there has to be some ulterior motive on one one side of it. And I don't experience that. And I don't know if you experience that. When I was a kid, I had no female friends mm. because anytime I started to develop any kind of friendship, it was pointed out like that, mm-hmm. which did no favors to my social anxiety because then I was like, oh, I'm doing this wrong. Mm. But it was a lot of my parents being like, so is it your girlfriend? Mm. Or And it just got old. And mm-hmm. I was like, I can't even have these friends without there being this outside questioning. Uh, yeah, that outside qu- questioning. I didn't necessarily have that as a kid. I mostly because I didn't have any friends. <laughs> so, but but I, I developed really close friends in high school, and some of them were men, and some of them weren't. Right? To me, it was like, oh, this is really exciting. I have friends at all. So yeah, it's just a really interesting. I still hear that sometimes. This came up because I was telling somebody I was that I was meeting you, and they're like, "Oh, 
what's going on there? And I was like, literally, <laughs> we've been friends for I don't know how many years. Like, this is a friendship. This is what this is. And she kind of winked and nodded about it. And I was like, well, okay, I don't need to like, I don't need to even entertain it very much because it's not, that's not my reality. But I still think that, the, I think that you're onto something about this, like this assumption that it means something Whereas that's not the case if I have a close female friend that I like hang out a lot with or I find somebody new and I get really excited about them. They're not, they don't tend to go, oh, what's that all about? Well, okay, <laughs> it's nothing, it's a friend. Anyway, I guess that's, I was thinking about that as I was coming over here. Maybe the end of that will come to the, we'll, we'll stay in the podcast. But I, I was really bullied in like, probably like third through 10th grade with the really the the really bad more physical years being like 7th 8th 9th got to be better but I really had that sense of like I want to be your friend I'm a really kind of naturally hyper and silly person and you know kind of weird (laughs) and it was almost like my enthusiasm was the problem I was too enthusiastic about whatever to be friends with. And I had to really get back to like, oh, okay. Theater was one of the first places that that enthusiasm was okay. And not just okay, but like celebrated. Like, oh, you get to be, you're you're excited about being here. Great. Here, grab a broom. I literally got the Eager Beaver Award three years in a row in my, in my <laughs> high school. Um, the th- the theater group that I was part of in high school it wasn't it wasn't the high school theater group. It was the it was a kind of separate group. But just because I was so excited about things, but I I saw that so much of this like I have to really shift who I am in order to seem acceptable to be friend with that was that was what I learned in that time period and so getting you know I'm in my 40s now and I'm I'm still teasing that out I'm still trying to figure that I'm still going into you know these places where I I know some of the people and still wondering whether or not I said something wrong I did the wrong thing I literally sat too close to you or moved in the wrong way and irritated you and now we're never going to be friends like it still have not you and me but like that still happens to me and I I wish that I could say that that wasn't <laughs> it wasn't getting better but it's still happening so I don't know is that one of those things that just kind of never goes away maybe it might and, I mean you just figure out how to put it on the shelf and be like, okay. <laughs> yep. There's, I mean, I, I will say that I'm less bothered by it now. They used to just agonize over every social interaction. I'd go home and just, just kick myself for things I said, things that made people go, what was she saying? What was she doing? Why'd she come over and talk to us? And I, I would just agonize over it. <laughs> Send an email. I'm so sorry that I talked to you while you were talking to that other person and interrupted you. Like, you don't like that's not gonna help anybody former me yeah so I agonize about it less but it's still I still think about it so yeah it is a little bit more putting on the shelf I would like to think that I will eventually not care what anybody thinks of me I will also say I feel like I came out of the pandemic with a crew of people that I've not had really for a while like a solid group of people that I'm like, these are the people and I know they're going to, in some cases, like literally save my life or like literally, 
or like help me out and they, like they're people I can rely on and that I'm not going to feel guilty for have for for asking for help or whatever and that are going to be my friends and that are going to be there through thick or thin and that's I feel like I'm just starting to really get that solid good I've had pockets I've had I've had individuals that have been wonderful for some time period or or throughout my entire life I've I've had those people but I haven't had a crew you know what I mean totally so that's that's the the one positive thing that's come out of all of this <laughs> so we'll kind of start with where we met and that is as with everybody through improv yeah. At the time when I started at Brody. Oh, I'm so glad you're going to remind me how we actually met. Because I was like, I thought about this. I was like, how did we meet? I assume it was at the Brody. I mean, I know it was at the Brody. but And I and I know it was because you were a student. And I was a teacher and running the, the, the program there. But I don't remember really meeting you. You just kind of like grew into my friend. And I don't remember. Do you remember the specific? I don't remember the specific moment, but I can remember my very early days of doing fire drill. So fire drill was the greatest gift that the Brody Theater could have given to students. And it was for listeners who did not participate or did not go to a fire drill. We have three listeners and they're all part of fire drill, but let's tell them anyway. (laughs) Just in case. So fire drill was a Sunday evening student showcase. Mm. Sunday late evening. Late evening. It was after Diabolical Experiments, yeah. which was kind of the showcase of all the greats mm-hmm. of Portland mm-hmm. and guests from out of town often. And it would just be this mix, this random mix run by Beau Brousseau. He would invite people to show up to DE mm-hmm. and you would have every time a different cast. Mm-hmm. Wonderful show. I remember the peak of, I mean, for me, the peak of improv was when Diabolical Experiments was packed houses. Yeah, there were a lot of them. And the biggest names in Portland. Mm -hmm. And so you would have this carryover then of students who went to DE often would stay and do this show called Fire Drill. Mm -hmm. And Fire Drill was a collection of short form games and scenes. And Kiri ran that show. Yeah, I I created Fire Drill because we had this problem where there was this large gap between students who were graduating out of the program and doing an end of the term, end of the the session performance, and then performing the the performing cast. There was no like group that they could go into and get performance experience, and so. We lost a lot of people who were probably pretty good, but but just kind of fell through the cracks or just didn't immediately end up in a performing group. And when they did, they weren't really necessarily ready with kind of just experience because there's really not much that you can, there, there's not much that's better in improv than just doing a bunch of stuff, just doing it again and again. And it, it almost doesn't matter the quality. Like it does matter the quality, but like the expectation for me was never like, this is going to be the, you have to do the best improv. It was just like, just go up and do it. Just try to do the best you can and then do it again the next time. So I also wanted to do more short form improv. So there's two different types of well, yeah, that's pretty reductive. There's not necessarily just two different types of improv, but often people break it down to short form, long form. Some people refuse to believe that there's a difference between the two. People argue all the time about what the definition of each of those were. But the way that short form often is described is as games. So for instance, we're going to do a scene in which every line of dialogue starts with the next letter of the alphabet. So there's usually a rule to the 
seen, something like that. So I wanted them to practice that. And the other piece of it was that I wanted different groups to know each other, different classes to know each other. So you had to, I think you had to graduate, you had to be in level two or you had to graduate level two. I think you had to be in level two and you had to be currently taking classes. That was a really controversial decision I had that people pushed back on and were angry about because they would take classes and then they would graduate and they're like, I can't take part partake in fire drill anymore? Or what about my friend? They take classes across town. Can they come? This is just for these students. And I I almost feel like there should have been something that was like, come one, come all. There, there, there are those things now and they're very successful. It's just a slightly different thing. And one of the main reasons that I wanted to do just Brody students was two. The first reason being I wanted them to know each other. I wanted the level twos to know the level fives and to see the progression. But also I wanted to retain the students. I wanted there to be a reason to stay in our classes. And that really worked. In terms of, of keeping students in our program, it was one of the, I think, one of the successful things that we were able to do. But it was, I did it every Sunday for years without break. And then finally I started going, you know what, maybe somebody else can do this. <laughs> like, somebody else can run it. Everybody put their name on their hat in the on a slip of paper in a hat and I pull the names out or it was a basket. And those people would do scenes together. And that made a lot of people nervous. I don't know what scene I'm going to be in. I don't know who I'm going to do it with. Yeah, but don't worry. Everybody here supports you. Like everybody here is to like the people that would show up were really supportive of it. We often had just the players in the audience. We often didn't have like a lot of other people in the audience, but it was just a real we treated it like a show. We started it and ended it and did blackouts like a show. We didn't treat it like a practice session. So I think that that was really key to it. On that note of it being an actual show, it did have tech and music done yeah. to it as well. Yeah. And that's how I got started in it hmm. was, and this is my, one of my earliest memories of it and probably how we met was that I started doing tech because of Marilyn. Mm. She said during class, this is one of the best opportunities you have to watch other people do improv, mm -hmm. be laser focused in on it, to... Oftentimes you would have the opportunity to black out scenes from the tech booth. Mm -hmm. You were playing music. You were on your feet searching music mm -hmm. that would go. I think that was a maybe a tradition started by Fred maybe mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. looking for a song that related to the prior scene. Yeah, Fred was one of our first like fire drill techie. We had a lot of, we had a few people that, that cycled through, but he was one of the first like early and long-term people. Yeah. yeah. So he, I, I picked that up from him mm -hmm. of you're paying attention to the scene, but you can also simultaneously be searching on iTunes for a song that mm -hmm. is going to relate to that prior scene just so that when the scene ends and you have that little musical break, mm -hmm. there's just that little extra. Little bump. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yep. it just, it just, the whole thing was so polished. And it teaches you, you know, yeah, if, if there's beginning improv people out there and you're wondering how to get better at editing, you're wondering to how to get better at under you know the flow of a show learning how to do tech is really relatively simple you you don't need to have prior skills i did see that it was something that 
men tended to feel more confident and immediately than women. And I would encourage women to do it. Some of the best tech people I know are are women. So it's not it's not actually a gender thing, even though most of the time I when I would propose it, I'd have like four guys going, yeah, I'd, I'd like to do that. And then women were like, oh, no, I couldn't possibly. I'm like, literally, you're just turning a knob. Like, it's not that complicated. <laughs> I know there's a lot of knobs, but really, there's only one and I will label it for you. So you know which one to do. Like, there's a slider that you slide up and down and and we can get more complicated, but we won't. <laughs> so yeah. And then you learn to also be an improviser from the tech booth mm. in the sense of you're looking for musical cues mm-hmm. to drop in a scene. You're looking for lighting cues. Yeah. And you're not just learning what's on stage. You're, you're also helping create a better mm-hmm. show because you are part of the show from mm-hmm. there. It's not just turn on the lights and turn off the lights and play some music. And it is so needed. The difference between somebody to, to a well-teched show and just people getting up on stage and then ending scenes and ending the show just by stepping out. You can do it without it, but it's not great. The first Brody sets that we had were done in the basement of a a Mexican restaurant up in deep northwest Portland, up by Montgomery Park there, and a little little tiny basement theater with red shag carpet that was horrific. And for a short period of time, we didn't have enough people to run tech, and we didn't have really a tech booth. What we had was a floor switch that would black out the scene so we could turn off the lights by by running over just to the wings just to off stage and stomping our foot on this button so you can see people like it's really inelegant (laughs) so for me i think about like like boy anytime we have anybody even if you even if you're if you're so afraid of doing it don't be because anything you can do to help us is better than that (laughs) so yes so you started doing tech stuff and then and so that's how we were introduced i believe mm. so we were working together on that mm. you were hosting the show i mm. would tech and so we would check in i started teching while mm. i was in maryland's class in level one mm-hmm. which was a seven so week class. early that's so early yeah it's great yeah, uh, yeah. and mm. maryland says you should try teching it'd be good for you and i jumped on that because at the time it took me two weeks to get addicted to this stuff and pretty easy i was in mm-hmm. and i said whatever's going to make me better at this and feel more comfortable and get me into the community, I'll do it. We get to November. So I'm about two months into my improv Mm. career and fire drill anniversary comes up Mm. and I'm doing the tech for the, I believe, second anniversary of fire drill. That started, that was when it started to be big. Yeah. Yeah. I remember it being a big event Mm -hmm. and I believe that night everybody got one scene. That sounds right. Because there were so many people. Did we do like the very end thing where I did one long, ta- like LaRonde or something? LaRonde, that's the format I was trying to think yeah, of. Yeah, maybe something. Yeah, I think that there was one or two times in the anniversaries where we had 50 or 60 people. Yeah. And now we're talking about like an hour and a half long show and scenes are between typically kind of around two minutes. If you can get longer scenes in there, that's great. But often they'd be shorter, but some of these games are longer things. And so much of what on the, on the, my side of things of trying to figure out what to do was I would have them do, I would have everybody do a warm up, And during that time I would count how many people we had. And then I would break them up. I would say, okay, we have 23 people. 
which was a large time. Usually we had between 15 and 20 people. Anything over 20 was a lot of people, but we've got 23 people or, or 16 people. And then I would have to figure out different combinations of games because I, I, I wanted people to see different as many different games as possible in a night. I didn't want to do repeats if possible. And I wanted there to be as many rounds as possible. So my, my goal was to get everybody up at least four times, if not five or six times. And I usually was able to do that, you know, two person scenes, two, one minute scenes with one person, or, uh, you know, it's, it's really trying to figure out different ways of doing that. Gosh, I haven't thought about that in a while, but yeah, the, the, the anniversaries are huge. My very first scene on the Brody stage was in that second anniversary. Oh, did I make you do it? I don't think you made me do it. Okay, good. As you were saying, you would put your name into the basket Uh and you would get called maybe four or five times throughout the night. But I knew that night you were only getting called once. Yeah. And so I put my name in the basket because I said, I will do one scene and one scene only. Oh, good. To get this out of my system and try it and see what it feels like. That's so much a huge part of it. I mentioned some of the reasons why I wanted to do it. That was the other piece of it was was people were going into the advanced classes terrified of performing. And I was like, you're an advanced student. You've been doing this at least a year at this point. You shouldn't be terrified of being on stage. And really it just took a few times getting up there. But like as soon as you get up there. Yeah. So you 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 broke your seal that way. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's the perfect way to put it. <laughs> Yeah, I I wish I could remember what my first scene was. Mm. I don't. I remember the fe- I I can picture it in my mind mm. of me sitting in the tech booth, you calling my name, me going up on stage, and then I'm sure the the adrenaline just took over and I blanked out. Mm-hmm. So I it didn't get committed to memory. So you remember coming up on it on there? I remember coming up on stage. I don't remember the scene, and then I remember getting off and being like, oh, "That was amazing." <laughs> I bet it was wonderful. Yeah. I bet it was wonderful. It was so fun. And it was, I always think of that show as kind of a training wheels show. Mm-hmm. You couldn't fail at it. Nope. You couldn't fall off the stage. Nope. And every game was set up for you to succeed. Because if you, yes, I mean, I tried to really make it, I explained each time, but also if something was happening that I, it was very rare where somebody was, something was not happening. I'd, I'd be like, the next letter is G. Right. <laughs> or like, you can say this or remember this rule and that'll help you. Yes. <laughs> you know? So I was like on the side of the stage. I was kind of on stage, but I was kind of off stage at the same time, kind of whispering to help. I don't know if that was annoying or not. No, not felt, at all. Felt good. <laughs> no, I, I personally love side coaching. Mm. I, I think I'm using that as a umbrella a broad, term yeah, yeah. for that. I, I really appreciate that having kind of the nudge or the like, mm. remember you can do this or I, I wish I had had more of that, I think, mm. in my in my learning where because oftentimes I would be doing scenes and I'm so in my own head of am I doing this right? Mm. Am I following the format right? Am I whatever? Maybe the answer was I was doing OK because nobody was saying anything. Yeah. <laughs> but I do remember us pretty quickly because I was showing up pretty mm. often to fire drill either as a tech or a performer then after that happened that I started to sort of latch onto you as well yeah and be like how do I do this I don't feel like I'm good at it how can I be better because that's I that was my go-to for was I nice to you I was nice oh, to you absolutely right? okay, good. yes <laughs> I hope so <laughs> that's this what is I'm my here to talk to you about going today. like oh no was I not nice <laughs> <laughs> I think I try to be really nice, but no, you were you were the best host that that show could have had. Oh, thank you. It was it was something that I did this with Marilyn. I did it with you. I did mm. it with other teachers, but but you two were the first two that mm. I went to and had that level of comfort that I could go. I don't feel like I'm good at this. 
how can I be better? Or it would be after a show and I would go, well, I did that scene. How could I do it better? Mm. Or did I mess up anything? <laughs> Just tell me I did it mm-hmm. right. You know, something like that. So it was, you were this resource that, that I pretty quickly was like, oh, you're cool. You're safe. Well, yeah. And, you know, I think it helps that my natural orientation is that I'm excited that people are excited about the thing I'm excited about. Right. <laughs> and also, I don't really believe that you can do it wrong unless you have hurt somebody emotionally, physically, or or otherwise, spiritually. Um, spiritually, yeah. I mean, th- that feels wrong. And, you know, if you've said something that is inexcusable, that's not okay. But generally, you know, are there scenes that don't work? Yeah. Are there scenes that are boring? Yeah. Was it still improv? Yeah, it was. It's it's like, you know, playing soccer. Are we all going to be expert soccer players? What are those people? Soccer players? <laughs> you know, I'm not going to be a professional soccer player, but I could go out and play a game if I wanted to. I don't want to play it. Please don't invite me to play soccer. I do not enjoy ball games. I don't like balls being thrown at my head, so kicked at my head is no better. And I don't like running. So it's like the soccer is not... It's not for you. It's not for me. Yeah, I was thinking about, I wonder what what kicked us into hanging out ourselves. You know, was it getting food or was it I wonder whether or not it was did it start with cribbage I don't remember cribbage going back that far I feel like yeah, that's a more recent to thing think about it the only guess that I would have is that I just have to interrupt yeah I'm really good at cribbage it's the only thing I feel really confident about and it pisses me off because Kyle is objectively also really good at it oh, thank you and um it's kind of the one thing I smack talk a lot about. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> I would say our overall win-loss record, though, you have got me beat. Yeah, but every once in a while you go on like a tear of like winning three or four in a row. And I'm like, that's not that's not how this works. I win. <laughs> and then every once in a while you win. That's not, it doesn't go the other way. So I'll anyway. remember that next time we play. Yeah, good. Yeah. Uh-huh. So you're running Fire Drill at the time. Mm. You're running the education program mm-hmm. at the Brody Theater. Mm-hmm. You may also be one of the longest performing improvisers that I know. Hmm. If not... I'm not the longest, but yeah, I mean... And still to, active. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. There's not a lot of people who are still... I mean, you've got people like Daryl Olson and yeah. people like that, but... Consistently. Yeah. Performing still. Yeah. Lots of it. I've got... I Yeah, I've been performing... I, I started with the Brody. Well, so the Brody the Brody was a bunch of classes at uh, the Friendly House, and then the the advanced class turned into the Brody Theater when I was nineteen, and I'm forty five now, and have been improvising pretty consistently since then. In kind of the around to year ten eleven, I started taking summers off. And then, of course, the pandemic, I really didn't do anything. So I don't really count that. But I had been no. doing improv for about five years, four years prior to that. So I'm coming up basically on about 30 years of wow. performing almost consistently, almost almost every weekend. Not not all, but, but a lot of them. I've done a lot of shows. Yeah, it's really interesting. I just did my first show since the pandemic, since 2000. Really, I don't think I did any in 2020. I might have done one at the very beginning. So really, it would have been like since 2019. I did my first one the other day, and it was weird, (laughs) but also like real normal. Like I was like, oh, yeah, this, this is it. But I wasn't nervous in the ways that I thought I was going to be nervous or the ways that I am typically nervous when I'm going on stage. 
I was nervous for other things, but nervous about COVID. I was nervous about a lot of stuff, about just social anxiety of having so many people I knew. But yeah, it was, that's, it's weird because it doesn't feel like that long. But also when I start thinking about when I did certain things, I'm like, oh yeah, that was a long, long time ago. So you were doing theater in high school. Is that when you started performing? It goes a little further back than that. Theater, yes, high school is when I like joined a theater group that had, that was like, it wasn't professional, but it wasn't school. It was like a community group that was for teens, for, for people. So I started that when I was 14. Actually, this is interesting. I started that because in like... I was a dancer. I, I was a ballet dancer. And so I was thought of as a dancer, but my parents were both singers. And so I was also a singer and I was thought of as a singer, not an actor. I wanted to be an actor, but like whenever I would audition for musicals, I would get like a solo song or like a solo in, in one of the songs and no lines of dialogue, often because they associated the ability to memorize with grades and my grades weren't good. And so they were like, mm, she's not going to be able to like hold it together. I don't know that they were necessarily very wrong because I have terrible, <laughs> I have terrible memorization. It's very hard for me. I was really thought of as a dancer and a singer. And I, in ninth grade, I was taking a, a French class at the high school, which was about a mile and a half away by bike. So I'd bike over to the high school and my dad was at the time teaching a Russian class. So he was teaching a Russian class to this group of 10 students who were going to do a Russian exchange with our sister city in Russia. I went and I would like sit in on the tail end of his class. And it was always really interesting. He was a really inventive teacher. My dad is, if you think that I am enthusiastic, if you think that I am hyper, my father is like 10 times. I'm not even joking. 10 times as animated and as I am, I am like this little baby version if you see us next to each other and super creative. All of that to say I would come in, I was actually interested in watching my dad teach these classes. And so I got to know a couple of these, these students and they were all seniors. And he said, they belong to this theater group that I later joined in, in at the end of the summer after ninth grade called Acme Theater Company in Davis, California. And they have this end of the school year like showcase and it's going to be a few scenes from different plays that they've done. And it's a fundraiser. And do you want to go and, and watch them? These All of my students, almost all of his students happened to also be part of this theater company. And many of those students were also in the improv group on campus. And so they did a set, improv set. And I had never seen improv and did not know what it was. So I should actually go backwards. So I did kind of know what improv was, but not theater improv because as a ballet dancer, the ballet company I was part of was did Royal Academy of Dance style of, of ballet, which is a very strict style. And you had to like pass a test in order to move up. And it was, somebody would come from England to like test us. I stopped ballet when I failed two of those classes and wasn't able to move forward. And they were like, there's nothing we can do. And I was like, thank you. I'll move on to other kinds of dancing. But my teacher was like this really petite and wonderful teacher who had studied in England. She was, she was English. She was American though. And she would every once in a while just stop the class like every month or so and say, okay, it's improv time. And she would have us all face the wall and then she would have one of us come out into the center and just put on music and have us dance. And it was my favorite time because I was not good at memorization. I was really good at the expression and my arms were always really good, but my feet were a mess. And I was, I had really good rhythm and timing, but I just wasn't, I didn't have good technique. So this was my chance to like be, ah, here I am. And when I watched that improv set by these 
these these students in the Russian class, I was like, oh, it's that same stuff, but for theater. I could do that. I want to do that. That's amazing. So I joined the theater company that they were all part of, which was not an improv company. And we did, you know, I, I started there. That's where I started getting the Eager Beaver Awards because I was just so eager to help and do anything. And also just be around, you know, people who are older and, and weren't going to beat me up and were, you know, <laughs> I had small standards. But very, very, I was so eager that on my way to the auditions for that show, I got hit by a car on my bike and fell over and like really skid up and still went to the audition and did it and was like shaking and like, should you go home? I'm like, yeah, but first the audition. <laughs> so I, co I connected very quickly. I was like this thing that I loved in this, in um, dance. And I, and throughout high school, I was, I then joined because ballet didn't want me anymore. I joined a modern and African jazz company in which we were allowed to audition our, our pieces into the performance, which was amazing. Like that's not something that typically choreogra choreographers will let you do is like, hey, who has a piece that they want to like add into the show? And I, I was able to get a couple of pieces in there and each one there would be like, and from here until here will be improvisational. And she's like, you sure? I'm like, yep. And that was in all of the pieces I ever presented was there was going to be an improv piece because there was something about just moving and feeling and getting that sense of like, okay, I'm just going to let it flow through me and whatever happens is okay. Being somebody who has anxious, uh, not just anxious tendencies, it is the very core soul of my beings. I have an anxious skeleton <laughs> that holds me up. <laughs> But it was, there was something that was just like, all right, I, I give myself permission to be okay with this. So that was, I started doing theater and improv kind of like in, in earnest and actually being known as somebody who did theater and improv around when I was 19 or not 19, sorry, 14. And yeah, I joined when, when I went to the high school the next year, 10th grade, the, cause we had, we had junior high. So it was like, 7th, 8th, 9th, and then high school is 10th, 11th, 12th. So I went to high school the next year and uh, audition. Like there was a club, an improv club, and the rule was it was like an hour long, hour and a half long lunch. It was a long lunch. And you could, sh if you showed up, you had to perform. So they would number us off and group one would go up and group two would sit down and and watch and then it would swap. It's kind of like early fire drill. And we'd just do a few things and then we'd swap. And I hated it so much. I was like, can I just watch? I just want to watch a few before. So I, I understand how it works and then I'll get, then I'll do it. And they're like, nope, you have to get up there. And I remember just ha not hating improv. I wanted to do it so bad. I wanted to be good at it so bad. I knew from the moment I saw it, I have memories of the, the scenes that I first saw, like who was in them, where they were on the stage. I have really strong memories of it. And I hated doing it at first. Not, I didn't hate doing it, but there, the the pressure of what I wanted to do was so strong. And pretty soon I realized like it didn't matter that nobody else was like <laughs> nobody else was judging me as much as I was. And by the second year, I was able to audition into like the performing group, and I was I you know took off from there. But it was a very anxiety riddled piece for me. Yeah. So, and I also, but I also, you know, come from theater people. My, my stepmother's an opera singer and my dad um, did a bunch of like light opera, you know, performance stuff. And my sister started doing tech when she was eight. And, you know, like we, we just, we have theater and music and, and that kind of artistic thing in our family. So I, it wasn't like a real big leap for me. It wasn't like I was, you know, 
from a family of surgeons who are like, what do you want to do? They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Right. <laughs> this, this is who you are. Perfect. Um, makes sense. Yeah. 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 So you ended up in Portland. You were 19 mm-hmm. when you started Brody classes? I was 19. I turned 20 about four months in. So I guess by the time when we started the theater itself, I was 20. Yeah. It was like me and a bunch of like 25, 26 to 30 year olds, almost all men, not not all, pretty much almost from the beginning, the Brody was at least 50% women. And it kind of maintained that, which was which is unusual across the United States, but not unusual in Portland. Portland has always really been very different in terms of the male-female balance. That's not to say that it's always been easy for women. Yeah, I was 19 and we started the the Brody. I, I say we, but you know, I was I was 19, 20, and Tom, who's the director and owner of the Brody, was like, okay, we're a theater company now. So we had three different locations. We did shows everywhere. It was, it's a long, long, long history there and that I don't feel like we need to, you know, recant the entire time here. But it was, it's a, the the upshot is I found myself very early at at like 22, 23, I had gotten my massage degree, which is what I wanted to do for money. Turns out I didn't want to do that for money. I was performing every single weekend, sometimes twice or three times a weekend. And I was teaching dance at the time, partner dancing, because that was so that would have been like 98, 99. And the big swing boom happened like 97, 98, 99, somewhere in there. And I was one of the only people that knew how to do swing dancing at the time in Portland, specifically Landy Hop. So I was a teacher and I looked around and was like, okay, I'm not making any money, but I'm doing everything that I love. What's next? What do I like? This isn't, this isn't all there is. I know there's not. I hadn't been to college yet. And I, I had this real sense of like, well, I achieved it. I did it. <laughs> all the things on my bucket list I've done. Now what? And in some cases, I just kept doing those things. In other cases, I was like, yeah, massage isn't for me. Again, like figuring out what I wanted to do was kind of the big piece for me. It's, it's again, discernment. What is What has come to me and I love, but like isn't what I actually chose versus what do I want to pursue and actually do and love. And I stopped teaching dance because of that because I realized like I love dancing, but I'm not... I didn't love teaching dance. I love teaching improv. I love teaching improv. In part because I teach improv and then I see people get better. When I was teaching dance, they weren't getting better. <laughs> They're okay. They weren't getting better. I would, I would be like, well, you're not dancing how I think is. That's not right. Okay, well, never mind. <laughs> All right. Uh, interestingly, uh, Lindy Hop, the kind of dance that I taught, is famously improvisational. There's there's pieces of it that is that are improvisational. It's not a set dance. There are moves that you string together, but like improv, you're you're really it's a call and response. You're you're making a move and the person's responding to it. So it's it was again another way. You're giving me an impulse and I'm interpreting it in this way. So I was seeing all these connections um, between things. It was really interesting. And then I went to college and everything changed. Yeah. <laughs> I remember you saying it, I think I remember you saying at one point, if I was going to go professional, I could do it in improv or I could do it in dance. It couldn't be, it couldn't be both. Yeah, definitely. That was a a lot of my friends were starting to become dance teachers, like making their money on that. And they were starting to be able to travel doing that. I still have good friends that are, that make their money by traveling and are expert people in that. And, and many people who are still doing that, that I don't really know as well anymore, but yeah, it was kind of, I, I kind of looked at it, went, 
I could go in this direction. I could really work hard on this. But I, when I looked at it, I was like, I want to work hard at being an improv person. I, I think that I was, there was something about the, the excitement of, of competing in dance or, and of um, going and being this like flashy guest teacher. I did a little bit of that, but I, I honestly like it started to feel, I didn't enjoy it. I didn't enjoy it in the same way that I did with with improv and even with improv, like I, I could have moved to a big city and, and gone and reached for something different, but I didn't want to, I wanted to stay in Portland. So when you say professional, like, <laughs> like a Portland professional improviser is, is still like has another job or two. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't, um, he's like, yeah, I am, yeah, I'm a teacher, but that doesn't nest. I'm yeah. I get paid for it every once in a while. This doesn't mean I, I make I'm not professional in that same way. Yeah. I definitely made that choice to, and I think partially just because of what I was getting out of them. Improv just gave me so much more in some ways though. I'm more talented as a dancer than I am as an improviser. In a lot of ways, it just comes naturally. But I think that was actually part of the problem is that improv didn't come naturally to me. It was very hard for me and it was very difficult to get over a lot of the the anxieties and the and the self-doubt and the, you know, letting myself actually just move out of that was really hard for me. But dance never felt that way. I was always like, yep, let's do it. I wasn't very technically good in in terms of you know, the very strict ballet that I worked with, but everything else I was like, yep, I'm good enough for this. And, and I'm good at it. And people really enjoy watching it or they enjoy dancing with me. But yeah, it, 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 it for me, it kind of points to like what you may be most talented at may not be the thing that really fulfills you the most, which is, I think, kind of a little bit sad, but I think it's an important thing to note. Like I'm really, really talented at this, but it's something that I enjoy going and doing but it's not the thing that that I feel the burning passion to get better at, which is what improv was for me, where I was like, I got to do this. There's there's something that like pushes me. And I'm feeling that same way now where I'm going, what, do where does improv fit in my life? What do I want it to look like? Because I don't have a theater that I can just show up every weekend and just assume I'm going to perform in. I don't have a class that I'm teaching right now. I did this one project and that resulted in a show and it was great, but I don't know what I, I have to figure out what how much I want to pursue it and how much I want to like put into it right now because it's we're coming out of the pandemic and I get to make that choice. So we'll see. I want to ask about because you taught improv for so long. Mm. How did you do that? How, how, how? <laughs> uh, well, uh, step one, join a theater when you're 19. Step two, do not leave. <laughs> Success. <laughs> right. More from the perspective of, this is going to sound horrible. I'm a horrible person. Watching beginner improv at this point is extremely difficult for me. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's hard for me too. Okay. It's really a different, I think... I, I don't have kids, but I know people who are like, I love my kids, but I hate other people's kids. It's a little bit like that. So when you're watching A, <laughs> premise A, <laughs> watching a group improvise, if I am there to give them notes, I am looking at a very technical thing and it doesn't matter to me if I'm enjoying it. Right. I'm looking at like, oh, okay, that I don't, there's no character uh, right there. This person has a character. Oh, that person just adopted that. Okay. I should give them notes about that. All right. This, uh, this 
Oh, they've just denied, they've blocked that. That's a habit. We should talk more about that. Okay. Um, oh, that scene ended early. What happened? All right. You know, like, so I'm, I'm really looking at it like that. I'm not like, oh, that's interesting. That's not part of the equation. I will say if I'm not in a performance, I can barely sit through any improv, not just beginning improv. Is that because you've seen so much of it? It's, it's partially because of that. You'll, if you ever see me, like if you ever go to an improv show with me, occasionally I, I will usually try to sit towards the back. Even if it's really good, is tough for me. But I, yeah, it's, I, and that's not to say it's not good or engaging. It can be really great. But I, if anybody ever sees me in a show and I'm like, I've gotten up and I'm pacing in the back or I've like gone kind of behind the curtain or something or gone to the bathroom, it's just, it's like this physiological response. So, but if I'm giving notes, that's one thing. But if I'm not giving notes and I'm just expected to sit and watch a show, it, that can be hard for me. And it's, it's not even about like judging or feeling like this is good, this is bad. It's just a, I get anxious or I get, sometimes I want to like fix it and I can't, or I want to help or I can't, or I want to, or even I want to participate and I, I can't. So there's, there's just this, maybe just straight up ADHD. I'm not exactly sure. So, but, but no, if we're talking about beginning improv, well, you know, I saw a ton of fire drill. I saw a ton of show and fire drill scenes were actually pretty good to me. They were pretty good, but they're beginning, you know, same with Im beginning improv, like scenic stuff. I also think it helps to understand where people are. When you're teaching a class, you understand that they're not doing all the things that you wish they were. The scene isn't good, but they actually succeeded in having a character this time. And so it's so exciting. And so for me, I'm like, oh my gosh, look, you just did that. You had a horrible, horrible scene. I don't say that part, but I was like, it's a terrible scene, but you had a character. You went out there and you said yes to that thing. That was, that's all I wanted to see out of that, right? So for me, it's much more about like those little things and, and seeing the progression, knowing where they're at and knowing the next step they need to go like pedagogically in order to get better. Like what's the next thing that they need to start thinking about because they've mastered this thing and, or maybe they've mastered it before, but now they have a new bag of tricks and those things aren't working as well. So, so understanding how that kind of works, which I think is really something that happens if you teach a bunch, um, you start getting that sense of like, ah, I can see them improving. I can see them them moving forward. So yeah, does I, I I know you started teaching. So you you taught some improv recently. Was yeah. it? And you said it was painful. It was a little rough to watch. This was very beginner. Some of the games they you know, I was teaching them new games. I taught them. Do you know one hundred and eighty five? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I've, I know a couple versions of that. Yeah. yeah. I was teaching them that today and they were just, and I, I set them up to fail. Like this was mm. too much for them. And at the same time, I was sort of glad that I gave them that challenge. And they didn't know that when they got up on stage, they didn't know they were going to be doing a pun game. Right. And when I told them, okay, you're doing a game called 185. It is a pun game. Half of them were just like, oh no, why? Mm -hmm. And all of them gave it a shot. Mm-hmm. Half of them didn't make sense. Half of them weren't puns, mm -hmm. but a hundred percent of them were effort. See, that's the part that I get excited about. Like, I know I would be like, "Oh, that's awesome! You didn't do like I'm terrible at that game. I'm terrible at those types of games." You put me on the spot and say, "Say a thing that rhymes with this thing." I'm like, "What? Fuck!" <laughs> 
<laughs> I, my brain short circuits. So I have a lot of sympathy about those kinds of things. Every once in a while I can come up with something, but it is like, oh, I did it. But for me, those are effort games, right? If we're talking about performing, I probably wouldn't put that in a performance unless I knew that the people doing it were really comfortable and excited about doing it. But most, yeah. So, so yeah, I think they probably enjoyed it, even if they were, they struggled with it. They seemed to be enjoying it. There they, we are. They were laughing. That's the, that's the goal right there, right? right? I think that the other thing that I try to do with beginning improv Anytime, even if I'm just teaching a one-off exercise, I try to contextualize it. I try to say, this is this is the kind of skill that we're going to get out of this. And so the reason I do that is I say, what this, so like for that game, I might be like, what, what we're going to be doing here is largely focusing on taking turns, largely thinking, you know, following through thinking on the off the top of your head some lateral thinking some you know this thing means that so what does you know if a equals b this you know that's how pun pun jokes kind of work often you have to kind of think laterally so i I kind of break down the skills that they're going to be practicing not that they're going to learn because they may not get good at them but like these are the things that we're going to practice and so if you thought laterally but nothing actually ever came out of your mouth great you did a great job you know, so that that also helps, I think. And I would do that in in fire drill too. I'd be like, this is the game we're doing. This is for this reason, right? We're doing the ABC game. It is a verbal game. It helps you think about what you're saying so that you slow down, so that you you are deliberate with your words instead of just trying to talk the scene into being. That's why we do it. Not just, I mean, it's fun. The audience loves it, but there's a reason that there's something that we do that that it teaches us too. It's a specific muscle. Yeah. So that's that's a piece that I, yeah, it's a specific muscle exactly. Like we're we're at the gym right now. We're not on stage, so there's no pressure because at the gym you could be like, I'm gonna test this out. Nope, too heavy for me. I'm gonna try something lighter. But I tried it. I don't actually know how gyms work. Is that how that works? You just try the heaviest thing that you can lift and then see which. <laughs> you you hurt yourself trying the hardest thing first. Yeah. You recover from the injury. Yeah, that's how that works. And then you come back and you go, well, I'm not going to go that far this time. No, but I think, <laughs> yeah, it's like, okay. I think that so often without that context, people assume that the goal is to be funny or to get it right. And with something like 185, there's not a right answer in any of those. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of things that, that sound great, right? Or sound funny. Getting a, a laugh is is fun and it does it feels rewarding and it but it's also if somebody makes a clever thing that doesn't necessarily land it doesn't mean that it wasn't successful it just means that in that moment it wasn't funny in my mind right so yeah it's it's about it's about identifying what the what the exercise is going to do for them i find helps people focus less on the outcome and more on the process which helps them worry less about whether or not it's funny or not, right? Because so often improv is reduced to, was it funny? And you go, well, no. Okay, well, was it successful? Well, it couldn't have been successful. It wasn't funny. Well, that's that may be not true. If we're in a performance, maybe that that can be part of it. If that, if that is your stated goal, that if you want to make them laugh and you didn't make them laugh, then sure, that's a problem. But in a class... That may not be the the stated goal. The stated goal would have been like, my goal for this scene is to make eye contact because I'm bad at that. And I did it. I don't know what I said. We were somehow on a spaceship. I don't know. 
Great. You did it. Keith Johnstone, who's a, you know, improv guru, one of the early improv gurus. Some people still feel like he's the, the be all end all. Some people are like mm, over that, but he, he's still around. He's, I took a workshop from him. He said that you have to build up the laugh and that is meaning you have to, to deny the laugh for a while, deny it, deny it, deny it, and then they'll explode. If you let the, the laugh valve go too frequently, then the show will be at a medium level the entire time. But if you let it simmer, let it simmer, let it explode, you get these high highs. And I never really understood how to do that, but I've seen that in action when I've when I've seen shows that kind of throw off these like every two like like a stand-up where you have this rhythm of laugh, da da laugh, da the the laugh. And there are these kind of, you know, you've, you've probably seen them shows where the scene or a scene where somebody just has that impulse to make a, a, a semi quippy, funny thing, maybe maybe it's pun related something that is, but it has no meaning or buy or payoff. That to me is like, yes, I, I can do that. I, I can make an audience laugh anytime I want to pretty much. I just go and make a fart noise. They'll laugh at me. Um, mostly because I, still look like a librarian um but the uh, just go oh fuck and they're like what and they laugh so i can make them laugh if i want to but without having in my opinion without having relationship without having context without having some reason for that it's less interesting to me there seems to be i think an a, a trend towards these really quippy non-vulnerable style of scenes that I don't necessarily love watching. I think that they're less interesting to me. And and the audience is laughing. Like every three seconds or five seconds, they are laughing. And so they feel successful, but they feel like eating cotton candy for dinner to me. Where I'm like, that's great, but what what did I just watch and why? What is, uh, okay. And also it's kind of the same thing I've seen a bunch. I think that you can swing the other way and become really, really over dramatic and theatrical with it. And I don't necessarily want to live in those scenes either all the time, but there's a happy medium where you have some really good meaty fun scenes or maybe a mixture of those. Like there's room for all of it. I've always said like, if I can get the audience to go, aww, <gasps> that is like, or <gasps> ooh, if I can get them to make any other noise than laughing, that's except for you or like, oh, I don't want that noise. And that's I, I try to avoid that one because that usually means that something has has gone real south um, or oh, like I don't want them to be disgusted about what's going on stage or or back on their heels. And I think that sometimes really gratuitous humor on stage does that to the majority of the audience. I have a pretty filthy sense of humor. I have a pretty big potty mouth. I did a lot of serving in restaurants and you cannot work with chefs and not not come out of that with, and or in theater and not have a pretty lewd sense of humor. But when it's when I'm on stage, I actually work pretty cleanly in part because I've seen what happens with audiences when the majority of people go, oh, gross, or oh, okay, too much. And then you lose them and you won't bring, you won't get them back. And yes, you will get a laugh out of the six people that are, that found that funny, but you've lost the other 94 of them. And 
I see that a lot with like college level improv where they're just like, <laughs> I can make a dirty joke. I'm like, you sure can. But what did it cost you? You cost you all the rest of the people. And I'm not saying you you shouldn't say that. I'm not here to censor you. You can say whatever you want in your scenes. You can have your subject matter be whatever you want in your scenes. You are You are on stage and you're saying those things and people will judge you for that. I'm not going to be saying you shouldn't, but what I want you to do is realize that you'll actually get more out of them if you are, in my opinion, if you are able to to read what the room is liking, right? As opposed, and every once in a while you get a, a, a bunch of people who are like, oh, we'll go there with you. And they're like, great, dicks everywhere. And you're like, dick, dick, dick. And they're like, thank you. Um, so um, everyone's I got you, um, but most most scene, most audiences aren't like that. Most audiences are like, "Hey, so you've said dick four times now. That's a lot. Could we do some scenes without the minute?" You know, like I'm not a censorship person, but I am a like, Wait, you "Gotta like why 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 would you do that? Why would you you know, it's just, it's the same feeling I have about accents. I was like, well, most of them are offensive and you have to have a pretty good reason why it's important to the scene or the character, right? Most of them aren't great. You're not good at it. And you think that you are. And at the very best, you know, if the if the but if the reason for the joke is the accent, mm, that doesn't that's not going to work for me. <laughs> But I, it's so often that's why people want to use them. But again, I'm never going to tell somebody, stop using accents. It's it's more like, I mean, if they're using offensive accents and I'm in charge in any way, I'll be like, hey, so we're not going to do that in these scenes because I get to say it, so. Um, but, but yeah, I'm not going to censor somebody just because I hate it. It's more like, let's actually be inclusive of the audience. Let's extend them. I, I talk to my students. I say, let's, you, have, you have your own thoughts and they're in your head and you only have to please you. Well, then you start doing improv and you actually have to make both you and your partner comfortable on stage, right? So you don't want to say anything that's going to, you don't want to you know, touch them in a weird place. You don't want to say anything that's going to make them uncomfortable because then they're not going to play with you. And also because you might be hurting them, right? mentally, physically, emotionally, any of those things. So you don't want to do that. So let's let's be respectful. But let's also extend that respect out to the audience. And if you do that and you're inclusive of the audience and you extend out your inclusiveness to include them, you're going to find a lot different of a of a vibe. Like instead of it just being like, hey, you and I are going to tell dick jokes at each other. Oh, who cares what these... I heard that guy laugh. It's right. You know, I don't know why my... <laughs> Why my person that's being offensive talks like this? <laughs> Let's New not Yorker. do accents. Let's not do accents, right? Let's not do accents. <laughs> <laughs> but he talks like this. Um, I, you, you can't see it, but I'm every time I talk, I've got two thumbs and I'm like thumbs up that I'm just like sticking out. Well, it talks like this. Anyway, I, it's it's all improv philosophy stuff, but I think that there's there's a lot of conversations about inclusiveness. How can we be respectful of people and butting up against freedom of speech and freedom of, of whatever? And I've had a lot of these conversations teaching at the college level of like, well, I wanted to do that character. Okay, why? What are you gaining from that character when there's a million other characters? What's important about it? What are you saying about that? Not everything has to have a reason. Well, you're right. But also, nobody wants to watch it. Maybe it's not that interesting. So you've seen roughly, let's just say, 30 years of improv. Roughly. Yeah. What would you like to see more of 
that people aren't doing. I am seeing kind of a, a move in this city from a more relationship style of improv, organic style of improv is often how it's referred to, to a more games-based style, UCB style. I don't think that's wrong. I don't think that's bad. I think that that it can be both of those things at the same time. But I think sometimes what happens is it becomes a little a little cardboardy and I miss the vulnerable the vulnerability and I don't mean deep dark scenes that are soppy and emotional but scenes that have eye contact <laughs> scenes that have characters that know each other I you know I'm missing a few of those things that and it's I think that's really just a personal style thing. We'll also say I have not seen a lot of improv in the last two years. So I'm really just basing that statement out over some of the stuff I was seeing in the in the past few years. And I'm not even singling out one theater or one group or anything like that. It's just a general trend I'm seeing, not just in Portland, but kind of in different places that I'm seeing. I don't think it's necessarily bad. I just think it's different than what I tend to like. I tend to like scenes that have have that are less premise based and more organic beginnings that I that have really strong relationships. I've I've always that's always been the thing that I've coached people towards say if you if you've run out of things to say, you don't know what to say, it's because you don't know your relationship because you don't have a strong enough relationship. And that's nearly always, it's not always the case, but it's nearly always the case that you don't have a strong relationship. So make a relationship move. You know, just say something that clarifies how you feel about the other person. And, and when I say relationship, I don't necessarily, there's two different ways of, of talking about relationship. Often people think I mean like, oh, you are my brother. <laughs> I turn to you and be like, hello, brother. Like, okay, well, that does tell me your label, but it doesn't tell me anything about how you feel about each other, right? And that the dynamic part of relationship, the dynamic of, I've always separated out relationship of being the label and the dynamic being how you, how that label treats and feels about each other. So we can actually feel differently about each other. If you are my brother, I am your sister, our dynamic may be one of sibling, sibling rivalry. You may feel jealous of me, but I feel really warm towards you, right? So we might have different different dynamics coming from different sides of it. I don't see that complexity happening right now. It's the, it's the thing I'd like to see a little bit more of. I think I always want more of that. It's just not the, it's not the piece that, that's the trend that I'm seeing is a little bit, a little, but, you know, audiences laughing more. So if that's the goal, you're succeeding at that. And that's, that's awesome. It's not always my goal. I want them to go, ooh, <laughs> or, oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so we got to figure out how to wrap this up, which is my my most difficult part of this whole podcast is figuring out how to stop it. Okay, here's here's my I question. I would love your input. Here's my question. So if we're friends, what do you wish for our friendship? What do you want in our future? I would love to spend more time with you. Yeah? It is something that, especially in the last couple of years, I feel mm -hmm. like I've gotten to see you less, and that's mm -hmm. on me, I think, more than anything. Also a pandemic. And a pandemic. Yeah. Now that I've started working again, too, mm. I feel like I can do nothing else. I am exhausted. <laughs> and so I've been really conscious right now, especially over the last two weeks, of like, I haven't seen people mm. and I want to see them. Sure. And I want to make a better effort at that, about, especially about planning things. Yeah. And going, 
here is when I am free and I would love to do this. Let's do it. What I like because oh, I'm passive. No, you are. You are. Um, but I, I don't dislike that. Um, I don't feel like that's a problem that you need to fix. What I like is that anytime I've been like, it's your turn to to reach out next time. You've been like, okay, and then you do it. <laughs> so, because I'm naturally the kind of person who's like, oh, okay, we're going to do this thing. Okay, we're going to do this. Hey, you want to hang out? Like, I'm I'm often the person that reaches out. So that balance works out really well for me. But yeah, I, I think that that's the piece. You, you said you felt like in the last couple of years, we haven't hung out. I actually, you know, compared to most people, we have hung out quite a bit. And I feel like that's one of the things that I've always really appreciated with you is that I'll be like, hey, let's take a walk. And you're like, yep, let's do it. Or like, hey, do you want to sit on my on, on a really uncomfortable chair on like in the rain and sit and talk to me? And the freezing cold? Yeah, that several times you have sat outside with me in the freezing cold because we're I was like, I need to talk to somebody. And could you please come over and I'll give you whiskey and a blanket? <laughs> and you're like, yeah, okay. <laughs> and we're like, maybe we shouldn't do this. And then we do it again. But, you know, I, that's the piece that I've always appreciated. So great. And also, you let me talk a lot. I'm not much of a talker. So thank you for filling the space. So you did a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Where I bring on other people who do the talking. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's about you, not me. Mm-hmm. Do you, after all of this, um, do you feel like you want to still be my friend? Absolutely. Okay. Well, I'm not sure. Um, oh, well, I'm, I'm telling you now <laughs> on the record. Yes. No, I'm not sure for myself. Oh. But, yeah. Well, I'm supposed We're to gonna... ask you that question. No, no. <laughs> Carrie, are we still friends? Yeah. That was enthusiastic. <laughs> I am nothing but enthusiastic. <laughs> I, I, yeah. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks so much to our friend Kiri for sitting down with me today. If you want to become better friends with Kiri, find her performing improv around Portland and say hi. Are We Still Friends is produced and edited by me, Kyle Coleman. Music provided by our friend Jack Martin. Visit arewestillfriends.com to find more interviews with your favorite or new friends. <laughs>